And any corporation who's thinking about innovation is thinking, well, I need to hire a bunch of you know, radical creatives and free thinkers. And no, no, no. You actually need to hire people who are incredibly thoughtful about this. I'm your host, Angus Nelson. I am a consultant, speaker, and coach that helps your business build alliances with the audience you want to reach. Brand storytelling, product marketing, and business development are just part of the services I offer to integrate your company's best attributes into the lives of your perfect customer. If you need some consulting services, you can find more information at my website, AngusNelson.com. It's time to jump back into the show. Test. I'm Angus Nelson, and this is the Up In Your Business Show, made for upward-focused professionals, those that want to take their life and business up. We are the uppers, the upper echelon, upper momentum, and upper mentality. Those among us who are committed to learning, focused on increase, and dedicated to making our lives count. We don't shrink back. We don't run away, and we sure as hell don't quit. We iterate, innovate, and generate forward progress. For we are the upper existence of mankind, those who will never settle for status quo, and we're obsessed with making the world a better place. Most importantly, we seek to make our upper-level living a contagion to those around us. For we are confidence, we are influence, and we are impact. Do you want to make your character, confidence, and career go to the next level? Well then, welcome to the Upper Tribe. This is your community for accelerating growth, challenging perspectives, and creating a life that matters. And if you're listening to this show, you obviously have come to the right place. You want to take your business up. So let's get started by getting up in your business. Have you ever found yourself waiting for a great idea to hit you? Ever got stuck because you felt you just didn't have that perfect idea or plan? You've likely found yourself struggling to muster a creative concept in your life, thinking you're not like Steve Jobs or Elon Musk, Warhol, Mozart, or even like Lady Gaga and Rihanna. As such, you may have, as a result, thought of yourself as less than, maybe disqualifying yourself from forward progress and the next step towards this thing in your head defined as success. What if I told you it simply isn't true? Marketers who are supposed to be the most creative people in a business, I found were over and over again, like, oh, like, I wasn't born creative. Like, that's not me. I can't do that. Like, you know, if I want to be creative, I have to hire an agency. And I was hearing all of this, like, I can't, which drives me sort of batty. And so I started researching more and more about creativity and getting really interested in the topic because I was trying to tell marketers the story of, like, you actually can become more creative. And isn't that the story that most of us think, or at least that we tell ourselves, is that I'm not like this person, I'm not like that person, and we then disqualify ourselves from actually accepting the fact that we are creative. What if you actually have the capacity for great ideas? What if you are capable of conceptualizing that thing you so desperately want to dream up? Well, today, I want to help you connect to your inner creative 
based on the book, The Creative Curve, How to Create the Right Idea at the Right Time by a gentleman named Alan Gannett. And at this end of the show, you're going to get an exclusive link to download a very special video by our guest. And he recorded a brief tutorial just to this audience about how to jumpstart or unlock your creative process. So stay through the end and uh, you're going to get that link. Just to let you know a little bit more about Alan, he is the founder and CEO of TrackMaven. It's a company that works with large brands to help them uncover the meaning uh, revealed by the patterns of marketing data. And in working with major brands like Microsoft and Marriott and Saks Fifth Avenue, Home Depot, and a lot of others, Gannett found that there was a significant pattern. Most marketers, even well-known ones, weren't hitting their goals. And while their ad campaigns demonstrated creative thinking, their commercial success often fell short. So he asked himself, could there be a method to combining creative and commercial success? I was talking to all these marketers, talk was going really well, people were really motivated by it. And sort of over time, I realized that this is not just a problem for marketers, but it's creators of any field, right? You think about the people who are daydreaming about being great chefs or musicians, and they're like, woe is me. I'm not, you know, a Michelin star chef. I'm not Mozart. I'm not Santana. I don't have these amazing, you know, talents that are just oozing out of me. But when you actually read the stories of creative genius, when you talk to these people, they'll tell you over and over again, that's not how it actually works. But for some reason, we're not willing to believe it. And so this book was all about trying to convince people with a lot of science and data and, you know, firsthand interviews that no, no, no. Like, you actually can learn this stuff. So think about it. If you and I are always disqualifying ourselves, focusing on what we aren't, what we can't, or how we'll never, our future becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, never actually realizing our full potential and impact on the people and career that we want. Yet, when we were children, we saw the world as this endless sea of possibilities, right? This famous creative executive went to a kindergarten class and he asked you know, the kindergarten class to raise your hand if you're creative. Everyone's hand went up. He went to a sixth grade class, asked him a question, half the hands went up. He went to a high school senior class and you know, a quarter of the hands went up. He went to a college class and no hands went up. And this is sort of the notion of, I think when we're little, all of us realize our own innate creative potential and we sort of go through the system of life and education and sort of beat out of us really violently. I love Alan's choice of words there, violently. I mean, obviously I'm not happy with why it happens or that it happens, but yet that's how we begin to believe that we are not as awesome as those around us. We compare ourselves to everyone else. Gosh, we're so guilty of it. Even in social media, we see this person, that person, they're more beautiful and they're doing cooler things and they're going to awesome places. We end up doubting ourselves and our own abilities. We actually sabotage ourselves from being creative. What if instead we understood that almost all of the greats had some similarities to their creative genius, that actually they were more like us than they are different? And if we just follow their same methods, we could do the same. So the thing is, when you look at any great creative, so take a musician, take a playwright, over and over again, you find that the highest performers actually have the most structure. There actually is a methodology to creating new ideas and innovation. And later, you'll learn it's a lot easier than you think. 
You see, we spend way too much time focused on the outcome and not nearly enough on the actual process. And yet that's how anything truly gets done. Do you need a dynamic speaker for your next event? I've spoken at events like Social Media Marketing World, Aruba Tech, Podcast Movement, and Dad2 Summit. I've also spoken for headquarters at Coca-Cola, Walmart, Adobe, and others. The topics that I speak on include leadership, influencer marketing, people skills, and the future of work. And my favorite talk right now is called Honing Your Humanity with New Marketing Strategies to Create Brand Influence. Testimonials from many of the places I've spoken include Jessica Phillips of Now Marketing. She recently hosted me at Social Media Week Lima and said this, Angus was engaging, entertaining, and educational. He scored amongst the highest feedback of all of our speakers at the event and a perfect 10 on the question, would you pay to hear this speaker again? Then Phil Mershon of Social Media Marketing World stated, he did a fantastic job working with speakers and the audience. He was thoughtful, energetic, passionate, and fully present throughout the week. And finally, Beverly Jackson of MGM Resort says, Angus is a master and a rock star without question. Well, that's quite generous. So if you are looking for a top-notch speaker for your next event, please reach out to me with an email at hello at angusnelson.com. And for more information, you can go to angusnelson.com forward slash speaking. Again, angusnelson.com forward slash speaking. Now, let's get back to the show. I spent a day with the Ben and Jerry's flavor team, and their process for creating flavors is incredibly like data-driven. It's incredibly methodical. Every year, they come up with 200 flavor ideas. And then they test those with an audience of 750,000 people via survey, and they ask questions. The two questions are, how long are you to buy this flavor, and how unique is it? Because the thing is, I talk about this in the book, is that great ideas are both familiar and novel. And so if Ben and Jerry's just asked people what are they most likely to buy, then all they'd ever have is cookie and brownie and caramel flavors, right? And what they need is they need ideas that are both commercially viable but also unique, so it actually pushes the brand forward, so it's actually innovative, and there's a really fine balance there. And the issue is that when you're just free associating and brainstorming, there's no process, right? You're shooting in the wind, there's infinite possibilities, you're not learning, you're not building knowledge upon each other, which is not how the great creatives actually work. I talk about in the book, there's a sort of mafia of pop songwriters all focused around Max Martin, who's a Swedish hit doctor. You know, he's written tons of number one singles, he's written, um, Taylor Swift recently wrote most of the number one singles, a lot of the Carrie Perry hits, and then he's taught all these people his way of writing music, and they're all become wildly successful because they build upon each other, they have a structure, they're not just free associating, they have something to build upon that they know that works, then they can in turn bring their new ideas and innovations back to the group and really create this sort of dynamic where there's a community of these amazing songwriters. And so... That's radically different than sitting in a conference room with a whiteboard just saying, what ideas do we have? So Alan is acknowledging that just having great ideas, having just a, a wealth of opportunity actually creates confusion. There's been many studies around the element of choices and how if there's a menu that has too many choices, it makes it really difficult to order. It's kind of like going to Cheesecake Factory and you don't know where to start. In the same concept, when you're just looking for good ideas, there's so many of them, it's very hard to narrow down. And yet when you expose yourself to 
others that think like you think, you can oftentimes find patterns, like he was saying. For me, I moved to Nashville, Tennessee, to get around other creative individuals that I felt were like myself, other storytellers, those who were doing some of the same things I wanted to do. And Alan describes this in as one of his laws, and he calls it the creative community, where the power of creative peers can create clusters and patterns and collaboration. For me, I tend to be the dumbest guy, the poorest guy in the room. I like to be that guy because I want to be around others that inspire and challenge and motivate me. And another one of these laws is related to that. And when you're around these other people and you're taking in their information, their content, the things that they're doing, following their path, you often step into this thing called consumption. And it's the act of exposing yourself to a large degree of content around your area of focus. Our brain then disseminates or processes all of this available content and then has it for readily access, ready access, or however you say that. It discerns the patterns and the concepts along the way. A lot of the things that we, when we think of the sort of Western model of creativity, which is this sort of like aha moments, creative genius oriented model, is really based around that there's these mystical moments. But when you actually look at the science of these mystical moments, and scientists have studied this, the the scientific term is sudden insight. Scientists have studied this. It's not actually mystical. It's just different, right? It's It's just unique. And what happens is this type of processing, it all happens in our right brain, is much more subtle. It's much more metaphorical. It's like the shy kid at the playground who's thinking of ideas and like, Only when things get quiet or only when an idea is really great does it actually pop into consciousness. And so in order to have those great ideas that your right hemisphere can process, you have to have all the inputs. You have to have the ingredients. You have to have the fuel. So if you haven't consumed lots of music and lots of books, you want to be a writer, your right hemisphere is not going to be able to connect those dots. So, of course, you know, you don't wake up with great melodies in your head like Paul McCartney did with the creation of the song yesterday because – you haven't spent, you know, literally 10 years as a kid in a musical family surrounded by music and then went and worked in a cover band where you're constantly hearing all this music all the time, right? And that's actually not surprising. And so I think that for me is one of those things where when you look at how our brain works, these things that seem magical are actually just biology. And processing all of this information that's around us, whether we grew up with it like Paul McCartney or it's around us by the association in our creative communities or if it's just the things we've taken from the internet and we process all this information in our brain, there's a strong correlation that all of these inputs cause us to subconsciously connect to things that we've already known, we've already heard in some form or fashion. And therefore, there's this familiarity that hooks us into believing that this thing we're listening, this thing we're seeing, this thing we're knowing is actually something that we like. They did this amazing study where this professor, Greg Burns, took these students and put them in an MRI machine and had them listen to music. And then these were all songs by unknown artists. They weren't hits. And he had them say which songs they liked and didn't like. And what he found at the time when he first did it was that there was no relationship between the songs that they said they liked and how their brain activated. There's no pattern. Fast forward five years and he took the same data 
and he looked at which of those songs had become a hit. And what he found was that there was a correlation between the songs that became a hit and the one that activates certain parts of the brain. And so what that tells us is even though we're not actually conscious of it, there's certain underlying things that our brain picks up on and our brain likes. And those formulas, those structures, if you can tap into those, that's incredibly powerful. So through history, what we found is that there were different patterns that people would recognize and different systems or processes in the way that things were created. So what a number of the greats actually did was copy the systems that they had observed around them. In fact, they imitated the forms and structures of songs or stories. In order to go to the next level, which is actually to be able to structure your own ideas, you have to actually have what I call interactive imitation, which is that I interviewed, for example, Andrew Ross Sorkin, who's the guy who co-wrote Billions. He has Deal Book on the New York Times. He wrote Too Big to Fail, like just a, sort of a wonder kid. And he talks about how he learned how to write as a journalist is he would go to the New York Times archive. He was a 22-year-old New York Times writer, had this dream job. He would go to the archive. He would find front page stories from the business section, and he would actually write out what was the outline, what was the structure of the story, you know, did it start with a quote, did it start with a metaphor, how did this work? And then he would take his own stories and fit it within the structure that he knew worked. And by having this process, he learned what's the great structure of stories. And that's really important. That's a trend you see over and over again, is that these creative greats go through some period of intense imitation where they're constantly imitating or to learn these structures that will resonate. And I tell the story of uh, Benjamin Franklin did the same exact thing as Andrew Ross Sorkin when he was a teenager to learn how to write. And we think of Ben Franklin as this amazing writer, but at one point he was like an awkward teenager who thought his writing was terrible. And so I call it the Franklin method because when you write a book like this, you need to have kitschy names for your things. That was my kitschy name, you know. Um, but it's, it's really fascinating that over and over again you find that imitation is actually a really important part of creating new ideas. So who are the greats in your field? How are they doing or performing the things that you so respect or admire? Are there patterns that you can follow or imitate? We've already covered three of the four laws in the creative curve. This is Alan's book. We've talked about consumption and taking in lots of relevant content. We also talked about creative communities for patterns and collaboration. And now we're talking about imitation, like music and story arcs, or as Alan calls, the Franklin method in writing. I think the fourth one is one of the most important, and we're going to get to that here in just a few moments. But first, I wanted to ask Alan, what was it like to write a book that's all about creativity with the inherent expectation that readers might have for him to, you know, really nail this book? Because obviously it's a creative process. As I was writing this stuff, there's sort of like a meta experience where when you write a book about creativity and hits, like it kind of has to be a hit or else you're screwed. And so, um, but one of the things that was interesting was I was reading thousands of pages of peer reviewed research on um, creativity and innovation, all this stuff. And I would have all these aha moments in the shower when I was running in the gym about like really nuanced, like things around creative philosophy and thought. They're like, I would never have those ideas if I hadn't been consuming this huge ingestion of content. And so that was very reassuring to hear things when I was doing interviews and then to be able to practice them and see the results as I was actually creating. 
So even as Alan was writing this book, he was also sort of living it too. So I wanted to go deeper, digging into what it's like for a marketer at some Fortune 500 company to think like this. It's, it's a challenge. It really is. I've seen it firsthand when I was running an association around innovation. It's one thing to talk about innovation. It's an altogether other thing to actually implement innovation. And it can create great friction when a large company wants to be innovative, but at the same time wants to keep control of their brand, their messaging, the tone, etc. And I wanted to know how to create this kind of momentum and deliver on actual innovation. So this is, a, this is a great question. I think it all comes down to having a person who's responsible for designing a process around innovation. So a lot of organizations have thought about this, but I look at you know companies, for example, um, like Intuit, which have a corporate-wide process for how innovation works, how they come up with new ideas, how they put teams together. I think Ben & Jerry's has been doing this for a very long time. Their business is R&D, right? Because if Ben & Jerry's had the same flavors forever, it gets stale, you get bored, you get over it. And so the organizations that actually bring innovation inside and do it well, organizations that are incredibly structured about it, it's not just about having you know, kickoffs and conferences, internal conferences with speakers and all that kind of stuff. It's about being incredibly methodical and it's also about using data. And so they'll do all sorts of polling to decide whether or not to green light a movie, right? They'll see whether or not the concept resonates, you know, are people interested in it? When they start the, actually making the movie, they'll take early cuts to a screening audience and actually get feedback and they'll change scenes or characters or reshoot things. You know, Fatal Attraction, they realized that the original ending was boring. So they completely redid the ending. It went on to make a huge commercial success. It won all these Oscars and awards because they actually had a process for how they created their art. And then this is what I thought was really mind blowing is once the movie's actually done, then in the marketing side of it, they actually poll America to see what movies they're gonna to go to. It's called tracking. It's very similar to a presidential election. And if, for example, they see that you know men aren't as excited about the movie as they think they should be, they'll change the trailers, they'll change the ad spend to actually do more with men to try and get more men to the movie. And so you know, these people who their jobs are innovation are actually the ones who use the most data, the most systems, the most process. And I think that's an important lesson for anyone and any corporation who's thinking about innovation is thinking, well, I need to hire a bunch of you know, radical creatives and free thinkers. And no, no, no. You actually need to hire people who are incredibly thoughtful about this. So if it's not about simply being creative and if there's a series of systems and processes, it's about how you apply these techniques. It makes me think of Donald Miller and his story brand technique where you as a brand position yourself as Yoda and the customer as Luke Skywalker. If you've never seen that, you should go check it out. Every great brand is creating a technique of guiding you into some sort of identity or a transformation. That's the key. Like Harley-Davidson makes you a badass or Nike makes you a just-do-it kind of athlete. Even Starbucks turns customers into some perceived sense of 
high affluence for drinking their coffee or for visiting their stores. These are all methods and techniques for thinking about your company, your product, or brand in a very different way. Russell Brunson states that we should follow a pattern where we encourage our customers' dreams and justify their failures, alleviate their fears, confirm their suspicions, and throw rocks at their enemies. These are all structures. And again, a different kind of example to great technique in creative storytelling. But another element to consider is also the timing of these ideas. It's not just conceptualizing, but it's also the place that you're at or the status of culture you're in. For some ideas, for example, if they'd been done 15 years earlier, they would have fallen flat. They would have never succeeded or taken off. This is one of the most interesting things I found with writing the book is that creativity is actually a social construct. So what do I mean by that? You know, a bunch of sociology buzzwords. Basically what it means is that, you know, if I was to draw a drawing and you saw it, it's probably terrible. You would definitely not say it's creative, but it's unique. Maybe it's even innovative. Why isn't it creative? But then there's certain artists who are amazing artists, technically incredibly proficient, but they draw something even though it's highly proficient, it's still not creative. So the idea, the concept of creativity, actually what it comes down to is that a group of people, and it can be a small group or a big group, that's important, have to agree that something is both novel and valuable. It has to be both of those things. And so what's interesting is, you know, if you think about the fashionistas in New York, they're looking at very, very hip fashion, and they can say, oh, this is creative. Right? Among us, we agree, this is creative. But then mainstream America is actually a separate group. Right? So what they say is creative is different. So in the book, I talk a lot about mainstream hits because they're actually a really interesting example of creativity because they're very obvious. Right? It's very obvious as a group of people we've decided, oh, you know, Pablo Picasso is creative. We've all sort of agreed to this. But since it's a social construct, it's dependent on people. You have to be in the right place. You have to know the right people. You have to be validated by the right institutions. And I mentioned this in the book, but unfortunately, that also means that a lot of minority groups are kept out of a lot of these fields. So when you write a book on creative genius, you find when you look at lists of great creatives, like it's a lot of white dudes. And the reason is really that because it's a people business, because labeling stuff as creative is a people business, that you know people tend to be insular, you actually have this structural inequality that I think obviously right now we're talking a lot about in you know, mainstream sort of media and stuff, but that's actually one of the biggest obstacles to creativity is that it really actually does come down to this people element. I believe this is particularly fascinating, especially when you consider that things like romance novels or movies, they would have considered gay issues or transgender issues as far too taboo. Or where Black Panther and other movies are now flipping that old faulty logic that minorities can, in fact, and should be heroes, leads, and champions in storylines. Totally. And, and that's what I think is such amazing about the time that we live in right now is that as those walls start to come down, I think a lot of these institutions are starting to realize, A, people 
will uh, vote with their wallets and they like diverse stuff. They like, you know, Black Panther has been one of the most successful movies of the last, you know, five years. And it's going to go on to have an incredible box office run. And that's a signal. Like, you know, executives get that. And the other thing is I think the internet has changed this so much. You know, things like Reddit, where you can actually see what do individual people care about? And when individual people become the gatekeepers, well, the individual people are much more diverse than these institutions. There's much less structural inequality when it's the people who are deciding. And so I think the internet is having a really positive effect on creativity generally. Ultimately, creativity seems to require two things in combination. As Alan said, it is the familiar and the novel. Those have to be done together. So be it our people groups, our societal norms, pop culture, etc. Those all have a place in what is acceptable in this thing called familiarity. And that's the magic sauce. In my opinion, to actually crack the door open for something, it has to have this familiarity first and then the novel introduced. Think of it like a hamburger. You need the basics of a bun and a piece of meat. (laughs) That's familiar in American culture. Culture. And for my vegan gluten-free audience, uh, you can replace those with soy-based alternatives, of course. But then someone says, hey, let's put some lettuce and tomato on that burger. No problem. And later, someone comes along and says, what if we place a fried egg on there, some smoked applewood bacon, and replace the buns with glazed donuts? <sighs> I don't want totally lose my vegan friends on that one but this is probably why even in the vegan world the foods take on similar expressions a vegan hot dog or a vegan cheese sauce these seem to be more approachable because there's an air of familiarity again we need the familiar and the novel in combination (laughs) like a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down And one of the now ubiquitous online brands we know today might not have existed if it hadn't also had a familiar expression to start. As humans, our limbic system has a really powerful force over our entire psychology. And as people, we've learned over evolution that we should be fearful of things that are unknown and seek out the familiar because they're safe and unknown might hurt us. But we also are constantly looking for new areas of reward. So we're looking for new food sources, you know, new new places where we get positive emotions. So we also seek the novel. These are contradictory. And the result is that when they do studies around preference or trends or any of these things, this contradiction leads to this beautiful bell curve. I call it the creative curve, which is that the more people are exposed to something, the more it becomes familiar, the more they like it up until a point, and then they actually start their novelty seeking wins out and they want to find new stuff. And so their preference goes down. And so this is incredibly important because with the Facebook example, when Facebook started, there's a whole different time in the internet. People, you know, the idea of having your real name on the internet, that was a big enough change. Let alone campus network had, you know, the activity feed, the news feed, the wall, photos, groups, all this stuff that Facebook would later have and make a ton of money off of, but it was too much. Right. People are like, "Ooh, this is scary. Let's just start with putting my first name on an Internet site and see how that goes. And so getting that timing right is something that is actually you can be thoughtful about. And I think that's one of the takeaways for me that was really meaningful from the book is that I think oftentimes when we think about timing, we think we have no control over it. 
And I'd argue we don't have complete control over it, but using data, listening to our audience, we can start to get a sense of where are we on that creative curve. In Alan's book, it's very subtle, but he identifies something really unique in how you and I position ourselves within our community, our company, or just in general. And it's something I want to speak to you directly, the listener, the upper tribe. You might be washing your dishes or dropping your kids off right now, or maybe you're exercising and working out. This is a critical element in the book that I know that I personally suffered from growing up in central Wisconsin and having this like Midwest conservative sensibility and we don't want to brag about ourselves or hold ourselves up or put ourselves out there. But there's this little quote from what seems like a very small sentence, but I thought it was very impactful. It says, part of being a successful artist, or I'm just going to say a creative, is being a persuasive salesperson for your own brand. Now, within your own company or as an entrepreneur, it doesn't matter across the board. We're sometimes afraid to show off. We're afraid to be seen as something bigger than, you know, what we think we are, like imposter syndrome or something. We don't want to show off our accomplishments. Are you listening? Yeah, and I think, I mean, think about some of the most successful artists of the last half century, you know, Jeff Koons, Andy Warhol. These guys were promoters. Are, I mean, Jeff Koons, I mean, it's just like, and both of them actually do very little of their own art. Andy Warhol had tons and tons of assistants and he directed, he was the artist, but it's this idea that him or Jeff Koons is like in a studio somewhere. It's like, no, no, no. Part of his art is his ability to sell it, to get people excited about it, to want to go and wait in line and see it and buy it. And like, and like, that's the thing where it's like so many people, um, you know, think they have to be this tortured artist. And I talk about in the book, you know, this famous study where they followed art students and the art students who were viewed most successful in art school were the ones who fit the tortured artist stereotype. They were the ones who were least successful long-term. The ones who were most successful long-term were the ones who were pretty good at art and great at sales. They were the ones who were recognized as most creative. Furthermore, in another quote from the book, he says, elite athletes and other expert performers had different developmental histories compared to their peers. The elite performers started early with supervised training and gained access to some of the best teachers and training environments. In short, research shows that exceptional talent is not always the result of winning the genetic lottery, but instead the outcome of immense amounts of structured purposeful practice. You see, I don't want you to go around thinking you're small, and I don't want you to negate uh, practice. I want you to get in the game and work at it. I want to tell you that you are amazing. You are beautiful and you are capable. Do not hide that from the world. By you being small, by you being, you know, this less than courageous type of thing, you will never be who you are made to be and what your gifts have made possible for you. So I want to challenge you. Let go of that ridiculous notion, this negative limiting belief that you are not creative or you are not enough. And instead, believe that you are, that you can, and be the best advocate for yourself. I developed a lot more creative confidence. I think, you know, seeing a book project through all the way, especially when it's your first book, it's one of those things that you're like, oh my God. It's funny because you're writing the book when I was writing it over, like it was a long stretch of time. The last half of the book was dramatically better than the first half. So I had to go back and rewrite a lot of the first half. 
but like coming out of it, you build up a sense of confidence. So like you're able to learn this stuff, research it. Like it's all a skill you can get better at. And I think that sense of, oh, I can learn things has been very exciting because it opens up, well, so my goal for 2019, uh, I haven't told anyone this yet, like publicly. My goal for 2019 is I want to become a part-time professional stand-up comedian because I'm like, it's just a skill, like you can learn it. I think that's been very freeing and liberating to realize that you can learn this stuff. Like if you're thoughtful about it, you can learn it. doesn't mean I'm going to be funny. Which takes us to the fourth law in Alan's book, and that is the one which I believe is most important, and that is this, iteration. So for you and I and all of us in the upper tribe, iteration is not having to get it perfect. This entire life that we live in, it's all really just an iteration. You go through conceptualizing something and then reducing it down to what's necessary and then you curate it and get feedback and then you do this iteration. That's what life is at the most basic level. So as we bring this into a close, I want to read this last portion from Alan's book, The Creative Curve and How to Develop the Right Idea at the Right Time. And the reason why I want to end with iteration is because this wants, I want this to encourage you. Uh, so here's this portion from the book. In Your Hands is not a book telling you that with minimal effort, you can be the next Mozart, Picasso, Elon Musk, or J.K. Rowling. No, this is a book that tells you that if you choose to dedicate your life to creativity, there is a path and a set of key considerations that you need to bear in mind. These are the things that you need to do and make success happen. Laws of the Creative Curve provide a blueprint for how every one of us can unlock our creative potential. The patterns of creative success can be learned, and with time, mastered. So I'm really proud of what my friend Alan is doing, both in his company and with this book and how it's been impacting people's lives. I highly recommend that you go and grab a copy for yourself. Um, in addition... I want to give you a special gift. In fact, Alan's giving you this gift. After our conversation, Alan created a brief tutorial in how to stir up more creativity in your own life. And this is, takes less than six minutes, and he goes through a couple of steps that help you eradicate false beliefs and some of these things that uh, become tools for how you can stir up your own creative process. And the best part of it, it's free. So you simply go to angusnelson.com forward slash creativity and get that video right now. It's my gift to you. It's Alan's gift to you. Again, that's angusnelson.com forward slash creativity. Now, if you're ready to accelerate your business, relationships, and leadership today, or if you've just begun your startup, your side hustle, you're just getting out there, before you do anything else, you need someone outside of your own head to offer objective guidance and a strategic plan. That's when everything changes. I help mid-career professionals move forward in smart and impactful ways, and I can help coach you on exactly what you need to be focusing on, what to do next, and how to create the most momentum right now. One of my clients, in fact, he just recently stated, Angus has made me believe in myself again, and he's made me a new me. Angus was fully prepared each meeting with a plan and a purpose, structured with an agenda and goals that helped us both stay on track in order for my transformation. My money was well spent, and if you're looking for a mentor and a leader, he is your man. Now, if you're ready to finally break free of whatever's holding you back, I'm here to help coach you now. You can find out more information simply by going to angusnelson.com 
forward slash coaching. Well, Upper Tribe, it has been a pleasure. If you have any questions or thoughts about today's show, please go ahead and ping me on Twitter at Angus Nelson. I'm happy to answer any questions there. Thanks again to Alan Gnett for taking the time to be on the show. Go ahead and check out his book. I'll have a link for it uh, in the show notes at angusnelson.com forward slash 066. I am your host, Angus Nelson, and I want to ask that you go ahead and tell somebody new about this show. Tell them what you learned. Tell them why they need to be listening because referral from you is the best compliment you can possibly give me. Go ahead and post it, tweet it, and send an email with a link to someone you want to encourage. That would be so appreciated. Get up, show up, and blow up. Keep taking your business up by continuing to get up in your business. Be amazing. 